Mina? Mina, can you hear me? The voice seems to be coming from a long way away, and from a long time ago. It's so familiar. There is concern in the voice, but Mina's instinctive reaction is distrust, resentment, enmity. She blinks awake, the world swimming back into focus. It takes Mina a moment to make sense of what she's seeing. She's in a study, lying on a sofa, sunlight filtering in through half-drawn curtains. There is someone leaning over her, silhouetted by the sunlight. The figure leans back, and she sees him. Ah, Philomena, you gave us quite the scare. Her fist misses his jaw by some distance, the wild punch easily avoided as the tall, slender man simply stands calmly and steps back from her reach. But it seems there is plenty of fight left in you yet. Thank goodness, the healers have done their job well. He smiles, revealing perfect teeth. In fact, everything about the man seems perfect. His hair, his clothes, the the handsome features, the easy, confident posture. Everything about him suggests refinement and culture. A man born to power and to leadership. Mina swings her feet to the floor, ignoring the ache in her ribs, and glowers up at him, fists clenched. Her voice is tight with barely suppressed emotion when she speaks. Why am I not surprised to see you here like a vulture over a carcass? Cousin Alexis. Hello and welcome to The Lone Adventurer. An actual play solo RPG podcast with me, Carl White. I will be your narrator, your game master, and your guide as we follow our hero, Mina Montessario, on her journey into the unknown. For this game, I will be using the D&D 5th edition ruleset, as well as a variety of other systems, tools, and tables as they take my fancy. A word of warning. The following scenes may contain mature themes and disturbing imagery. Listener discretion is advised. The adventure continues. Last time on The Lone Adventurer. Mina constructed Barbican, a steel defender, and Cadmus swore to stand by her. But the devotant had some shocking news. The Whisperer had been murdered. With all other avenues seemingly closed, Mina was left with only one option. To return to the House of Whispers. But she and her companions were attacked as they entered, attacked and defeated. Alexis Montessario's smile transitions flawlessly into a look of deep sorrow and sympathy. There is not a hint of insincerity in it. He bows his head. You have my deepest condolences at the loss of your former employer, Philomena, dear. The Whisperer's death is a genuine tragedy, an unforgivable trespass against our house, and one that shall not go unpunished. I will see to that, personally. Even now, you can stow the fancy speeches, Alexis, Mina snaps, rising to her feet. You don't need my vote, remember? 
Now, what in the wars of the song was that welcome all about, and where are my companions? The easy smile is back as quickly as it left. Ah, yes, of course. Please, forgive me. Without apparent signal, the door opens. A soldier in House Montessario livery steps in at once, hand on the pommel of his sword. Captain Veret, would you be so good as to fetch my dear cousin's companion? And her... equipment? The captain nods, and within moments Cadmus is shown into the room. From the way he is nursing his wrists, bindings have just been removed. A moment later, a guard appears, carrying a large sack, which he dumps unceremoniously on the floor before leaving. Mina opens it, retrieving her pistol, and then running her fingers over the bent and broken metal body of Barbican. As she does so, a series of fine runes carved into the metal flare into life, and the steel defender begins to self-repair. Alexis raises his hands, open-palmed in supplication. I must most sincerely apologise to both of you for your treatment, but you must understand, in times such as these we can make no exceptions, particularly in light of the somewhat unique circumstances. Mina knuckles the bridge of her nose. Alexis, for just once in your life, will you kindly forego the thirty-minute word salad and just get to the blasted point? For the first time, Alexis Montessario's perfect facade is breached, if only for an instant. As quickly as it slips, equilibrium is restored, the apologetic smile almost instantly masking the flash of genuine anger. As you wish, Philomena dear, let me speak plainly then. The House of Whispers has been infiltrated by shapeshifters. Beings capable of altering their appearance and faultlessly adopting the personas of trusted allies, and, in the guise of a trusted servant, of administering a pathogen that killed the most heavily protected man in Kairos. As acting spymaster, I needed to confirm that you were who you purported to be. The smile is back, this time with just a hint of raptor behind the eyes. Was that sufficiently succinct? Poor Mina. She and her little crew were absolutely demolished by the encounter that closed out last episode. A total party kill, and it wasn't even close. There were three reasons that went down the way it did. Well, four, really. We'll go through them. Firstly, when Mina and co. arrived at the House of Whispers, I asked the mythic oracle if they were in for a hostile reception. I'd been thinking along the lines of an antagonistic desk clerk, or perhaps a new boss giving her a dressing down, you know, the sort of, you're a loose cannon, Montessario, a maverick. I've got the mayor's office breathing down my neck. Screw those pencil pushers, chief. I get results. You're off the case, Montessario. Turn in your gun and shield. You get the idea. But, as it does so often, Mythic had other ideas. The response was exceptional yes. They were in for a very hostile reception. I drew an event and got Ambush Stalemate, which led me to the conclusion that the building had automated defences that could be activated to restrain intruders. It didn't take much rummaging through my monster books to come up with suitable antagonists. A suit of animated armour, a gargoyle, and two rugs of smothering constituted a deadly encounter for my party, and it seemed suitably thematic as a fantasy security system. The second reason for that complete wipeout 
was surprise. Now, surprise can be pretty devastating, with surprise combatants getting no actions at all in their first round of combat, not even reactions, while the enemy cheerily hammers away at them. And that's especially dangerous if the enemy know what they're doing. But we'll come back to that in a moment. When I checked the stat block of all the monsters for this combat, they each had the false appearance trait. While they remained motionless, they were indistinguishable from a normal rug, suit of armour and so on. And to my mind, that meant that the party would have no chance of detecting them, and so were automatically surprised with no check. That seemed fair in the circumstances. They got to act to the best of their ability in that first round, and my PCs did not. Which leads me to TPK reason number three. These monsters knew what they were doing. They made the optimum moves to take the party down playing to their strengths and exploiting party weaknesses in a way that made them much more dangerous than they might at first appear on paper. Now, I'd love to claim credit for that piece of DMing skill, but the credit really doesn't lie with me. It lies instead with a chap called Keith Ammon, the author of a book I recently picked up called The Monsters Know What They're Doing. Keith has exhaustively worked his way through the entire monster manual, working out optimal monster tactics based on each of their stat blocks in a way that, frankly, completely blows my mind. I can't recommend the monsters know what they're doing highly enough. It does something that I thought was impossible. It makes the boring monster manual monsters actually quite interesting and scary. It's a fantastic tool for any DM, but especially for the solo DM, because what effectively it does is provide me with an optimised monster AI. Here is what the monster will do first, and second, or in this circumstance, or in that one. I've immediately picked up the sequel, which covers all the monsters in the other 5e monster books. So, an example. When I picked the animated armour as an enemy, I'd considered it just another thug that would use its multi-attack to do a double slam each turn. And then I read the entry in The Monsters Know What They're Doing, and I realised the animated armour's multi-attack specifies two melee attacks, not slams. Melee attacks, and that includes shoves, or grapples. And if it shoves a target prone, and then grapples, the target has a speed of zero. It can't get up. Subsequent attacks against it have advantage. Now combine that with a rug of smothering, which adds the restrained condition if it hits, and then an ongoing 10 hit points a round of damage, along with any damage the armour dishes out on top, and getting out of that condition is being made with disadvantage. When you combine all that together, the effect is absolutely lethal, particularly when the setup for this death trap takes place in a surprise round in which the PCs can't do anything at all. And finally, reason number four. About the time I reached the conclusion that I'd potentially created an unwinnable Kobayashi Maru for my party, I decided this was fine. All part of the story. If the party were to be defeated, so be it. The important questions were why, by whom, and what would happen next. Death was boring and so not contextually likely. They were being restrained. But why? To find out, I first determined who Mina met by using Une, the universal NPC generator. There's a link in the show notes to that tool. I ended up with a crafty politician who, it turned out, she knew very well and didn't get on with. That sounded like family to me, and so I decided on a cousin. Then I asked why the not-so-friendly welcome, and was given expose intrigues. Shapeshifters sprang straight into my mind, and Mythic agreed with me. 
I sometimes double-check with Mythic on things like this, but I probably shouldn't and just go with my gut instead. I liked the shapeshifter idea and would probably have been disappointed if Mythic had said no. Anyhow, the enemy now has a face, or rather lots of faces. And so I've added shapeshifters and Alexis to my character list. It's time to move on now to the next scene. Mina sits heavily. Cadmus, who has been impassive up until this point, takes a step back, his face ashen. Blessed Ankara, you're, you're talking about the unseen, aren't you? Alexis raises an eyebrow. Indeed I am. I, I confess, I'm surprised you've heard the name, Devotant. Their existence is not common knowledge. Do you mind telling me how you came to learn of it? Though the question is impeccably polite, the acting spymaster's voice carries with it the unmistakable subtext that if Cadmus does not care to share what he knows, there is a very skilful, very unpleasant man in his employ who would happily repeat the question in a small cell somewhere deep below the building. Cadmus looks conflicted, at once afraid, angry and ashamed. He takes a deep breath, doing his best to calm his emotions. I was not always a devotant. I grew up on the streets of Ligzara, in Tanth. I lost my parents when I was very young, and I did what was required to survive. I ran with a street gang, petty theft, pickpocketing, burglary. I probably never would have left Tanth if not for... Well, some of the older children. They took me on my first dip of pickpocketing, and something went wrong. The man we tried to rob caught us, and there was a fight. He was stabbed and, and died, right there in that alley. And that's when his face, his, his whole body, changed. One minute, a fat old noble with a beard, and the next, smooth, thin, the skin sort of white and translucent. The devotant shudders and closes his eyes. We fled, of course, back to our hideouts in the city slums. We had no idea what it was we had killed, but we heard the whispers. We had our fears. We hid, but it did us no good. One by one, my friends vanished, or they changed. It was either run or die. I ran, and I'm not sure I've ever truly stopped. Mina stares at the devotant horror-struck. After a moment, Alexis shrugs. You always did have a thing for collecting waifs and strays, dear cousin. Regardless, yes, that is our conjecture, that somehow House Montessario have earned the ire of the unseen. Mina bites her lip, working all this through. But why? Alexis completes the thought for her. Why did they not simply kill the Whisperer and replace him? Why did they take the risk of sending an assassin to instigate such a grisly murder, risking capture and exposure? Why don't you ask them yourself? He presses a button on the underside of the desk he is leaning against, and a section of the far wall of the room swings open, revealing stone steps spiralling down into darkness. Alexis gestures towards it. Please, after you. I insist. Mina and Cadmus lead the way, eventually reaching a heavy iron-bound door. 
It swings open before they reach it, revealing a small hexagonal chamber of cut stone with a circle of glowing arcane runes at its centre. Manacles, embedded into the floor, hold a figure locked in place, though the pale-skinned, smooth-featured figure is quite clearly dead. You killed it? Mina asks, but Alexis shakes his head. It killed itself when it became obvious that capture was inevitable. It is bound like this to prevent reanimation, destruction, or extraction of the body. It may yet be able to provide us with some information. He turns to Cadmus. Is this what you saw in Lixara, Devotant? Cadmus nods slowly, unable to take his eyes from the thing. Exactly the same. Perhaps a little smaller, but maybe that's because I am larger now. He is lost in the past, reliving old and deep terrors. Mina reaches out and grips his arm, then stares at Alexis. Why? Once again, her cousin predicts her question. Why show you this? To, and believe me, I mean this with all due respect, dear cousin, to outsiders? Mina bridles at the subtle emphasis he places on the word and what it implies. Alexis, apparently oblivious, continues, The fair question. If news of the Unseen's involvement were to get out, it would be the final nail in the coffin. But I have decided to bring you into the fold, into the inner sanctum, as it were. At this point, finding agents I can truly trust is problematic, and whilst we have our differences, cousin mine, I like to think we have always trusted one another. Mina snorts. About as far as we can throw the palace of the Archdominar, what... What is the purpose of this olive branch I offer? Will you please stop doing that, Mina fumes. It's infuriating. Alexis offers a sincerely apologetic smile. Mina doesn't buy it for a second. Dearest Philomena, you always were an open book to me. Forgive me, please. She desperately wants to punch him in his oh-so-sincere face, but manages to resist the urge. Barely. Instead, she says... I'll say it again, Alexis. Stop getting off on the sound of your own voice and get to the damn point before it dies of loneliness. You'd never do something without a reason, usually self-serving. What exactly do you want? The expression on her cousin's face is, for once, unreadable, which makes Bina rather nervous. At least when he's displaying an emotion, she can be reasonably sure he's experiencing anything but what he's displaying, probably the exact opposite. The absence of a tell is disconcerting. Dearest cousin, times have changed. Subterfuge has failed. And the House of Whispers lies open and exposed. We face an enemy whose motives are unknown to us. Dangers grow in the shadows where my predecessor walked. They will continue to do so, and if we fight, blind and lost in the dark, we will lose. All this intrigue, this cloak and dagger. What has it ever really achieved, the House Montessario, but the creation of new enemies, when we should have been focusing on forging new friendships? It's time for us to leave those twilight paths behind us and bring House Montessario into the light. To win the hearts and minds of the people of this good city, to rebuild old alliances and to retake our rightful position as the principal house of this magnificent city. We must change the rules of the game, Philomena. Pretty words, Alexis. But 
Even if all that were true, how would you intend to achieve it? Even as the words leave her mouth, Mina is struck by a sudden, horrible thought. Oh no, surely not. Alexis smiles sadly, apologetically, but Mina sees straight through to the raptor's grin behind the facade. Why, isn't it obvious, dearest cousin? We shall win the hearts and minds of the people by publicly redeeming House Montessario's most wayward sister, and we shall win allies by re-establishing one of the oldest inter-house bonds and, in so doing, forming a power block that none will dare stand against. We shall change the game by offering your hand to the Duke of House Tereth. Well, as Mina would say, bugger. Just when things seem like they can't get any more complicated for Mina, something like this comes along. She's probably looking back on that climb from the underpipes with fond, happy memories at this point. Often, when I create a scene, I'll do all of the mechanical parts first, and then write it all up. But for this scene, I didn't do that. Instead, I asked the oracle questions, and then wrote until I needed to ask another question, and then repeated. And so, I was just as much in the dark about what Alexis was planning as anyone else, right up until the final oracle question. Man, he really is an absolute cast-iron shit, which is to say that I'm a cast-iron shit because I'm the one that made him up. But if it's any consolation, I probably hate him just as much as Mina does. Which is to say, there's a tiny part of me that really doesn't hate him at all. Now, the marriage idea came out of three things. Back when I first created Alexis using the Universal NPC Generator, I got several indicators as to who he was and what he was up to. I was told he was a privileged politician, with a motivation to work the world. Ambitious as all hell, then. His demeanour was indicated as inquisitive, and he had a request for Mina. Now, I had no idea what those two things referred to, but it had something to do with fame. I figured all of that would come out as I played, and, well, blimey, it really did. The second thing that happened to really cement the idea was the final question of the scene. What does Alexis want? Assist news, Mythic told me. Now that left me stumped for a few minutes. Did he want her to become his press secretary? Didn't sound like much fun. There was more thinking to be done. I said the wedding came from three things, and the third was one of my dangling threads. We were briefly introduced to House Tereth a while back, and if you've read the show notes for the episode where they have first appeared, you'll know that I rolled quite a bit more background for this great house than I used at the time and what I rolled intrigued me. But there was no direct link into the story at that time, and so House to Reth never made it onto my lists. But an important rule of creating connected solo narratives with random oracles is to link your threads together. If there's a way of tying those loose threads, then it's always going to serve your story well. So, I tumbled the three elements of Assist News, Fame, and House to Reth all together in my mind, and then in one beautiful instant, everything sort of knitted together. Sometimes, rarely, when you're playing a solo RPG, an idea like this will emerge from the random fictional threads you've laid and literally blow your mind. When this one surfaced, it was so perfect, so right, that it gave me the most amazing tingles all over my scalp and up and down my spine, 
a phenomenon that Google informs me is known as Autonomous Sensory Meridian Response, or ASMR, or, perhaps more accurately, a brain orgasm. A wonderful little Google rabbit hole, if anyone's feeling cognitively frisky. Now, the wedding idea that Alexis has got planned for Mina was not the only surprise in that scene. We also got a Cadmus origin story. The scene opened with an interrupt negatively impacting Cadmus, and the description Truce Anger. That was going to take a bit of interpreting as well, and so instead of rushing straight into it, I first established that the shapeshifters were a known faction, and I got an exceptional yes when I asked if they were criminal in nature. Seriously, spooky dudes, then. And so I came up with a suitably spooky name, the Unseen, and asked how Cadmus knew them. The answer was struggle opulence. Perhaps he'd been born poor. And from there, the street urchin story pretty much told itself and linked back to the truce anger prompt. Loosely, admittedly, but sometimes it pays not to be too literal and just go with a gut feeling. A quick side note on the topic of there being nothing new under the sun. Following that scene, I did a quick Google search just to check that the name Unseen wasn't widely used by something else. And there it was. The Unseen, a secret criminal society of shapeshifters based in Waterdeep in the Forgotten Realms. Either I once knew that and I plucked it from my subconscious, or great minds just think alike. But what the hey, if it serves the story, in it goes, and to hell with whence it came. Now, all this talk of matrimony actually leaves Mina in a potentially tricky spot, because like all the best, or worst, villains, Alexis might very well have a valid point. What if the way to save House Montessaria really is to stop all this fighting in the gutters, and instead to reach for the stars? I've added the wedding to the thread list, and Duke Tereth to the character list, and removed Innkeeper Celia and the Whisperer. The chaos factor goes back up to eight. Let's get back to it. He's a snake! A self-serving, power-hungry, backstabbing snake! Mina has been raging like this the whole way back to the missing link, and doesn't show any sign of slowing down soon. Barbican, fully repaired, marches silently along behind her, or as silently as an automaton constructed of steel parts can march. Cadmus, who has wisely kept his own counsel up until this point, decides to speak as they reach the front door of the inn. Mina, what he said, your cousin, that a union between House Montessario and House Tereth would solve the problems you face. Was he right? No. Well, maybe. Oh, I don't know. Mina throws her hands in the air in frustration. You never know with Alexis. I have no way of knowing if he genuinely believes this marriage idea will work or whether it's just some scheme. The only thing you can ever know for certain with Alexis is that he's out for himself. Whatever he's up to, he intends to come out on top. For all I know, he could be behind the machine cultists, or the visitor, or even the whisperer's murder. He could have hired the Unseen himself. You really think so? Cadmus asks, horrified as they climb the stairs. No, Mina concedes. Well, maybe. Oh, I just don't know what to think. This is what he does. He ties you in knots. He has you second-guessing yourself until you doubt your own sanity. She pauses on the landing and turns back to Cadmus. I'll tell you what I do know. I don't think Alexis is taking any of what's been going on as seriously as he should. The work the Whisperer was doing, his assassination, 
to him. That's all grubby inconvenience, something standing between him and what he wants. Now, it's possible this plan of his could work, if I was willing to go along with it, which, just to be perfectly clear, I am not. But it's equally possible that he's badly underestimating the trouble that House Montessario is in, or that he knows full well and that he's playing some other game. Cadmus shakes his head sadly. Such hatred within your family. Mina smiles, though it looks more like a snarl. You have no idea, she says, looking back at Cadmus as she opens the door to her room. In addition to every other terrible thing that bastard has done, Alexis Montessario is responsible for the death of my father. But Cadmus is not looking at her. He's staring past her, into her room, at the man leaning over Mina's desk, studying her blueprints. The visitor looks up with a smile. Miss Montessario, what a pleasure to see you again. I trust I haven't called at a bad time. You have been listening to The Lone Adventurer, a solo RPG podcast played, written and performed by me, Carl White. If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a five-star review or telling your friends. It really is a huge help. You can find show notes at theloneadventurer.podbean.com. I include any links mentioned on that site, as well as my interactions with the Mythic GM emulator and any mechanics information. The story will continue in the next episode of The Lone Adventurer. Thank you for listening.